0: For our guests, we have been, we've been in a great series. It's been on the book of Acts, and we've really been enjoying our time. The title of the, the uh, series is Unconquered, From One Life to All Nations. But we're, we're pausing in that series because we're going to take the next few weeks to just celebrate the coming of Jesus in this Advent. Advent simply means coming, so in this Advent season. And so I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. The book of Acts is written by Luke, so Luke has written two different books in the New Testament, the book of Acts and the gospel that he wrote. And so this morning we're going to look at Luke chapter 1 in a message about a man named Zechariah, and the title of the message this morning is Zechariah's Story. And we're going to look together in Luke chapter 1. I'm going to read a lengthy section in Luke 1, then we're going to flip over to Luke 2 and... uh, and read a little bit more. So Zechariah's story is the title, and let's begin in verse 5 of Luke chapter 1. In the days of Herod, king of Judah, Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at that hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Verse 18. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of the Lord and was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. Let's flip over into chapter 2. So what happens then is uh, a child is born, a boy is born to Elizabeth and Zechariah. And on the eighth day, he's scheduled to be circumcised. And when the children were to be when the boys were to be circumcised, they were always asked what their name was going to be. And so the mom, Elizabeth, said, "His name's John." People couldn't believe it because there were no Johns in Zechariah's family. And so they turn to Zechariah, who again he can't speak. And they say, "What's his name?" And he asks for something to write on, and he writes the name John. And they're all amazed. He said, "John," and then his speech immediately returns, and he begins to give this prophecy which I'm calling a song here, beginning in verse 67. And his father, Zechariah, that's John's father, Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, "'Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David.'" as he has spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child Let's pray. Lord, we want to thank you today for this opportunity to celebrate your Advent and for what that represents for us as a church, for what that represents for us as individuals. And so we pray as we look now in Luke chapter 1 and Luke chapter 2 that, that you would grant us understanding and that we might Comprehend the significance of your coming all the more that we might be able to enjoy and worship you all the more in this Advent season. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Did you ever notice as a kid how the most memorable Christmas songs that you had were ones that kind of revolved around a story? You know, Rudolph, the Red-Nosed Reindeer, or Silent Night, Holy Night, or Little Drummer Boy. For years, at Christmas, I have either heard or I have sung a song called The Twelve Days of Christmas. You know, Christmas is the only time of year that, that grown men can actually sing about lords a-leaping and, and maids a-milking and, and gold rings and French hens and, you know, not get beat up. And uh, you know, we just we don't know what it all means. We just assume it's some kind of strange European custom that we don't really know about, but somebody out there knows about. But there are people that say that that song was composed around the persecution of the Puritans, and that the the point of the song was to catechize, in other words, to train the children with certain truths that they couldn't profess openly. And so the true love is God. The partridge in a pear tree is, is Jesus Christ. And the two turtle doves, one is the Old Testament and one is the New Testament. The three French hens are peace or, or charity, love, and faith. Four calling birds are the four gospels in the New Testament. And the five golden rings are the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, In other words, you you begin to hear about that and you you, you begin to think, wow, that song is so much more than it appears to be. In other words, it carries a story. And if you excavate the story, you understand the song. Zechariah's song, In Like Manner, is so much more than it appears to be because this song too carries a story. And it is a, a a tale of failure, of loss, of mystery, and of promise. And if we excavate that story, we begin to understand the song even better. So let's do that. Let's let's take some time and let's excavate this story, which begins about nine months prior to what, what's being talked about at his birth. Christmas past, and it begins recorded this way in Luke chapter 1, verse 5. And in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest. His name was Zechariah. He was of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife. His wife was a daughter of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. So the character that steps onto the stage is Zechariah. He's married to a woman named Elizabeth. Now, next week, if if you're able to come back next week, we're going to talk about Mary, who's another character on this stage. She is completely different than Zechariah and Elizabeth. Mary is a poor young virgin from a backward town, and unwed mother with a fiancé trying to negotiate the shame of an inexplicable pregnancy. But that's Mary, and we're going to get to her next week when Pastor Paul preaches. But Zechariah's story delivers us to a You know, to a different social strata. In other words, we're moving back across the tracks from where Mary is onto a different neighborhood, into a different neighborhood, because Zechariah is a priest of the highest religious order, and he's a priest who has married exceedingly well. He married Elizabeth. Elizabeth is a daughter of Aaron, which means she is of the line, the lineage of Aaron. And so you have a priest marrying a daughter of a priest, and, and, and you've, you've got a life that's basically set up. Not only that, but they both came from the best of families. They had every advantage, and everyone expected that they, too, would have a large family, which was expected in those days from the Jewish women who were married, because you never knew when the Messiah might come. Zechariah is evidently a man of prayer. When when the angel appears before him, the angel says, God has heard your many prayers. So this is a guy who's a man of prayer. And if none of that impresses you, just check out this description of his life and her life in verse 6. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and the statutes of God. This couple portrays many things, but they are at a minimum emblematic of the best the law can produce. They're the best that the law can produce. They are religious. They are blameless. They are righteous. They are respected and respectable within the community. Now, it came to pass that Zechariah's priestly division was on duty, and he was chosen to enter the temple on behalf of the priests. This is a ceremony, by the way, that only ever happened once a year. And if you were chosen as a priest, it could only ever happen once in your lifetime. If it happened to you once, your lot was pulled. You were never in the, uh, you know, you were never in the lottery after that. And this was an incredibly big deal For the priests, I mean, this is like the Super Bowl for the priests. This is like the final round of American Idol for the priests. And Zechariah gets the vote. He's the guy on. And it becomes an even bigger deal for him when he goes in to burn the incense and an angel of the Lord appears before him. Now, just stop for a second and keep in mind the context of what's taking place here. The history that precedes this. See, God has been silent for 400 years. The last book in the Old Testament is Malachi. The distance between Malachi and the Gospels, which are the first books in the New Testament, the, dis- or the birth of Jesus, the distance is 400 years. There's been no words from God in that time. There's been no messages, no prophets, no prophecies, no angels coming and announcing anything whatsoever. You didn't enter the temple expecting God to say anything. But he goes in. And an angel appears before him. In fact, in verse 11, it's, it's even a bit understated. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord, you know, it's just you almost expect to say chilling on the right side of the altar of incense. Verse 12, Zechariah was troubled. This is always what happens anytime an angel appears. The guy is troubled and he's fearful, but the angel immediately speaks to him and says, don't be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been been heard. And I, you know, I, I get the sense that angels just kind of live for these moments, you know. They get to appear, boo. And, uh, you know, then, then the, whoever the witness is, they just totally freak out over this. Ah, don't be afraid. It's just me. I'm just busting on you you use that phrase, busting on you? No, you don't know what that means. Okay, that just means I'm just joking with you. I'm just having fun. That's, that's no big deal. So, so it, uh, the angel's there, and uh, he gives the news to Zechariah that you're going to have a son. He's going to be called John. There will be joy and gladness in your home. He will be filled with... With the Holy Spirit. In other words, Zechariah, your many prayers for your family have been heard. You're going to have a son. You're going to be happy. It's going to be joyful. Your son is going to be great before the Lord. He's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit before he's even born, and he will fulfill. The last thing that God spoke, the last time God spoke. He's talking back about Malachi chapter 4. And, and He's basically those passages in 17, he's, that's all just a direct reference to Malachi chapter 4. So he's saying he, he's going to fulfill. See, Zechariah knew his Old Testament. He knew Malachi. And, and so he understands what it is the prophet is saying. Now, you hear all of that backstory, and the logical thought is to think, well, so this is where Zechariah has his big faith moment. This is where Zechariah becomes a spiritual hero that many will hear about for years to come. I mean, the angel came. God has answered his prayer. He is more great news. He's, 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 he's going to have a son. He's going to be a great son. He's going to be a great man of God. He's a priest Zechariah is a priest. He knows the Bible. He's in the holy place. And, uh, and so now, you know, he's going he's gonna to take his place in redemptive history as the man who responded in faith, the man whose prayers were answered. He's going to take his place next to Mary as one who hears from an angel and immediately responds in faith and confidence to the word of the Lord, right? Not exactly. His response is in verse 18. He says, how shall I know this? Now, just stop for a second and think what's happened. He's in the temple. There is an angel standing in front of him announcing this. And this is the first thing out of the mouth of this man who is blameless and righteous. The best of the best from the best part of the neighborhood, from the best lineage that he could come from. Great family set up for life. This is his first thought. How do I know this how do I know this is this is really going to happen let me paraphrase he's saying you gotta be kidding me do you see me and this is where he begins to try to you know he's trying to think it through See, Zechariah is a leader he's he's thoughtful he's linear he wants to try to figure this out says wait a minute wait a minute Have you seen me? I'm old. I'm on Medicare. Can I show you my AARP card? Have you seen my wife? Um, Don't know how to tell you this, Gabriel, but they don't get pregnant at that age. So I don't know what you're talking about. Are you sure you have your facts straight? That's what he's saying back to the angel. Long pause, newsflash to Zechariah, you've got to leave the island, okay? That's basically what he's saying. That was not the right response. By the way, just a small piece of advice for for all of us. If you have been praying for years for something and you find that an angel of the Lord comes to you one day and goes to the effort to appear to you and appear in front of you and tell you that the very thing that you have been praying for for years is going to happen, in fact, it's going to be far better than you ever expected it to be, let me suggest that we go the route of Mary and not the route of Zechariah, that we go the route of receiving what the angel says, believing what the angel says, and not cross-examining the angel and ticking him off. Isn't it interesting that bound up in this Christmas story of shepherds and wise men and, and Mary is this, is this pocket of unbelief and failure of one who is presented before us as righteous and blameless and having it all together and it being in the best position within the culture. Because there's a far more important message that is coming through right out of the gate in Luke chapter 1 that is embedded in the Christmas story, and that is that this priest... This devoutly righteous man who is described for us in verse 6 as righteous before God, walking blameless. This man of prayer, who's in this defining experience of faith, has failed. He's failed. The law to which he has pledged his life was incapable of protecting his heart. This big moment for him, this big moment in life became a fallen moment in life. This guy who was set up to succeed almost from birth has failed spectacularly. And on a pretty big stage, too. I mean, we're still reading about this 2,000 years later. I wonder if any of us can relate to that today. You know, God promises us a certain future, but we only see the present God's announcing a future that involves the coming of the Savior and good things that are going to take place. But we only see our old age. We only see our limitation. We can't look beyond our leadership. We can't look beyond the obstacles. We can't see through anything more than our unbelief. And by the way, there's not a parent here, a parent here who is surprised that Zechariah's unbelief engages specifically over the promises of his child. You know, what is it about us? What is it about me? That we can face illness with courage, we can face loss with determination, but man, does God become small? Does God shrink when it comes to the promises over our kids? Does God become almost impotent in our mind when it comes to the question of having kids or raising kids. See, it's no coincidence that that particular angle of disappointment in the life of, of Zechariah and Elizabeth is embedded in the Christmas story. Maybe Christmas for you is an annual reminder and should be for you an annual reminder it should be for all of us, an annual reminder that God can deliver life even where life seems to be impossible. Where's that place where you see a total absence of life? Who is it in your life where you see an absence of life in them? You see an absence of them moving forward, of them moving toward God, of them coming alive in any way. We see this absence of life, and we speak in the same way that Zechariah speaks. We say it's impossible. Our bodies are incapable of producing any forward momentum or any change or any transformation whatsoever in that situation. But God says, no, when it comes to me, there's always the promise of life. And that's what he's telling Zechariah. And so Gabriel, you know, this doesn't bless him. And so he drops this bomb in verse 19. He says, I am Gabriel. I stand before the Lord. I was sent with good news. But because your unbelief, I've got some bad news. Your faithless voice. That same voice that has prayed, that has recited Scripture, that has given counsel to others in their times of weakness, that voice will now be silent. Will now be dumb, mute. It's like, it's like God called a timeout for Zechariah. No, you're going over there. You go into the corner, Zechariah. In fact, I'm going to give you some time to think. I'm going to give you nine months to think this over. Nine months to brood about what this really represents and who I really am. Nine months to consider. Nine months to pray. He didn't see the promises of God and he spoke his unbelief. So God removed everything but his sight to teach him to see. Nine months to learn how to see. And so that's where he goes. To to, to learn what it means to trust the promises of God of God, and ultimately to realize that this man that was blameless, this man that was religious, this man that came from the right side of the tracks, the right family, had it all to, 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 to lean back on, that his religion, his morality didn't protect him, the law didn't save him, that he too needed the very Savior that his son was going to herald in preparation for. And so he was dumb. He became quiet. Listen, if this Christmas is shaping up to be, you know, a quiet one for you or a lonely one for you, it may be that God is setting you up for a song. He'll do that sometimes. He'll he'll set the stage. He'll allow a failure to come in a big moment, render us silent to set us up for a song. And that's exactly what he's doing with Zechariah. But first, we've got to understand the meaning behind the words because the song carries meaning. And there must be meaning behind the words so that we know that it has substance when we sing it. You know, when I was a teenager, the uh, Don McLean song, American Pie, came out. Bye-bye, American Pie. Is there anybody that, that doesn't know You are un-American if you do not know that song. And I remember spending hours and hours singing a song that was utterly meaningless to me. I remember spending long nights discussing the significance of the song. We had one guy in our group that that claimed that he knew what each verse meant. And so he was kind of like the tribal elder that would sit in the middle of us and explain every facet of the song. But as I listened to him, I realized his intoxicated explanations only made it more perplexing for me. And it kind of left me with this feeling of, well, what's the point of the song if the words seem meaningless. Well, see, for Zechariah, God is making the meaning clear. For you and I in Luke chapter 1 and Luke chapter 2, God is making the meaning clear. See, Zechariah is a story of rescue. It's that God loves him so much that God is actually revealing his heart to him, showing him his need, that he might give him a song, a song where the words have meaning. Remember our opening? To the message, songs carry stories. If we excavate the story, we'll understand the song. Until we comprehend what nine months of silence means, we won't grasp what it means for a righteous man to learn that he is a sinner. We won't understand the seriousness of unbelief, which is a serious issue in Scripture. We won't understand and comprehend the seriousness of unbelief concerning the promises of God. We won't get what it meant for one man to take a tablet and write down one name, John, and what that statement really represented. Because it wasn't just a name. It was the meaning of the song becoming clear. It was a step of obedience that was resolving his unbelief, and it gave birth to this song in his heart, which was then spoken, his first words, as a prophecy to the Lord and from the Lord. So what I want to do is I want to just talk briefly about two two different themes that are kind of spotlighted in Zechariah's song. One is a primary theme, the other is a secondary theme. Two themes from Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 67, that emerged from the song. Theme number one, this is the primary one, God delivers on his promise to save. God delivers on his promise to save. So Zechariah, his, the son has come, he's written the words John, his voice has returned, and Zechariah is no longer silent. In fact, he's no longer deaf to the promises of God. And so his song starts this way. He says, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. He immediately begins to worship God. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. In fact, this this song that he sings has been historically called the Benedictus. That's just a Latin word that means blessed. And so there's this spontaneous praise that bursts forth from Zechariah. He's gone from silent to exultant. He's gone from uncertain to convinced. He's gone from doubtful to determined that God is going to work. And what's he specifically singing about? That God delivers on his promise to save. So he says, God spoke it by the mouth of the prophets, verse 70. He remembers, verse 72, his holy covenant. He remembers, verse 73, the oath he swore to Abraham. In fact, it may be captured most most movingly in verse 72 where he says, to show mercy that was promised to his people. See, it's almost like the song is magnifying the salvation of Jesus Christ by setting it in history and reminding everyone who will read the words that over a thousand years prior, God had made a promise to his people and he has not forgotten that promise. And he's not forgotten the promises for you either. He's not abandoned those promises. He has remembered his promises to his people. I mean, if you want to comprehend the transformation of Zechariah, just consider what it meant for him to go from disbelieving an angel that is standing in front of him, telling him the words of God, to trusting in the promises of God that were spoken over a thousand years earlier. He went from unbelief to faith. And, and we have promises too that God is urging us to believe in this Christmas. There, there's no angel, but we have the word of God and God's calling us back to his word. We don't ever have to assume that what Christmas is really about is some kind of supernatural experience with an angel. We have all we need. We have the promises of God in our Bible. We have the promises of God realized in our Savior. But sometimes it just takes a little solitude and silence to, you know, to really get it. You know, we live in a culture that, that, that favors extroverts, that favors Loudness. Silence is not something, particularly over here in the West, particularly in America, we, we don't do that well. At times I've traveled to the UK, I, you know, I constantly hear people talking about how loud people from the West are. And I don't know, maybe that was a problem for Zechariah. But one of the things that silence does for us is it, can, it teaches us discretion. It teaches us that words matter. Words not only have meaning, but how we use them matters. It teaches us to be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger, as James chapter 1 says. In fact, if you're interested in doing a fascinating study, look in Proverbs at the connection between silence and discretion. Verbal restraint and discretion and so we have this song that that that, that has come forward after a period of silence, and, the, and, and each word of the song is just is just carefully selected, meant to communicate something, and it 's about the presence of, of of the promises of God, but also about the prediction of of, of a savior. And again, I mean we could just go through it. Verse 68. He has redeemed us. Verse 69. He's the horn of salvation. Verse 71. He saved us from our enemies. Verse 72, he's shown us mercy. Verse 74, that we might be delivered. On and on and on it goes. And it kind of it kind of springs from this crescendo in verses 68 and 69, where the transformation has been so complete that Zechariah describes the Savior as having come in the past tense. Let's, let's just look at that for a second. He said, blessed be the God of Israel, for he has visited us and redeemed his people, past tense, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us, past tense, in the house of his servant David. See, that's talking about the Savior. And yet for Zechariah, the transformation in his faith is so complete, it's a done deal. It's a done deal already. He's talking about it like it already happened. I brought a quote by Piper. He once said, quote, For the mind of faith, a promised act of God is as good as done. Nine months ago, this guy couldn't believe that an old woman could have a child. Now salvation history for him is locked down. I mean, it's a fixed reality in his mind. What happened? The promises of God didn't change. Zechariah changed. His faith towards God's changed. He, he finally saw the Savior for certain. Have you seen the Savior for certain? You know, have, have you seen him in this season working? And I don't mean physically. You know, Zechariah hadn't seen him physically either. He hadn't even been born yet, but Zechariah saw him. See, the more we're wondering whether we live with the certainty of these promises, the more that life just dogs us. And so God is kind enough to reach down to us and not only redeem us, but, but remind us that he's at work removing our fears. He's at work delivering us. He's at work saving us. If you're a guest here today, you know, All around this room are are people that come from a broken past. All around this room are people that have experienced in their life failed relationships, family problems, indiscretions in things that they've said that have had big consequences. In fact, most of us share one thing in common. Like Zechariah, we have failed. But like Zechariah, after he... God has voiced back, we have embraced the word of God. And that has convinced us that being good enough is not enough. Being good enough is not enough. That God, good works won't save us. That we are utterly wrecked before God. We're utterly wrecked before God. And it doesn't matter what kind of family we've come from. It doesn't matter who our parents were, like it did for Zechariah. It didn't matter. I mean, I came from a two-parent fam- two family. Middle-class home, suburbs of Pittsburgh. My parents loved me. They helped me, set me on my way, but that didn't help me get saved. That didn't do a single thing for me in getting saved, because I had a deeper problem than parenting could reach. I had a deeper problem than my past, even a good past, could reach. We need help with our deepest problem. We need to be rescued by God. And part of what Christmas is all about is coming to terms with the reality that you can be a verse, chapter 1, verse 6, righteous, blameless, great home, married into the right family, but you still need a Savior. And you need a Savior today. And when you get a Savior, boy, do you sing. And boy, does Christmas represent something different. So that was the primary point of what he was prophesying, what Zechariah was singing here, that God delivers on his promise to save. And secondly, this is a secondary issue, that God sends a prophet as a sign. And that's, of course, speaking about John. And I say secondarily because there's an instinct to think that Zechariah's song is all about John. And that's certainly understandable. I mean, the guy just had a A son, he had waited for a son. Man, you know when you have a son, how you want to celebrate fathers exalt in sons. But actually, if we study the entirety of this song, we'll see that John inhabits only two verses of all of them. Verse 76 and verse 77. He says, John fulfills the prophecy. This is what he says in 76 and 77. John fulfills the prophecy of the very last words in the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, that he was divinely called by God to go before the Lord, and he's called to prepare people for his coming, and he was a great man. In fact, to Jesus, Jesus told people that among men that have lived, there's no greater man that ever lived than John. His, his existence and his mission in life was so essential that he's inextricably bound to the Christmas story. We can't get to the Christmas story without going through John. But here's the point. He's not the Savior. He only points to the Savior. That's what makes John so significant. He points to the Savior. John is a prophet preparing the way for another, he was a sign pointing to the reality of the Savior. He's not the Savior. You know, we, life gets very confusing if we begin to confuse signs and saviors. You know, if we relate to life as if the sign is the Savior itself, the sign is the place that we stop. You know, if, if I drive down to the Tallahassee Airport, you know, you pass a sign on the right as you're driving down there, and it's a sign telling you that the airport is up ahead, Says which, which tells you you're on the right road and that the airport is right up ahead in front of you. But the sign can't be confused with the airport itself. I mean, if I'm driving down there and Kim drops me off with my luggage at the sign, <laughs> I'm a pretty pathetic sight, aren't I? I'm, I'm sitting there under the sign with my luggage, people driving by. Uh, Kids saying, Mom, you know, why is that dummy traveler there with his luggage under the sign? It seems like he's confused the actual airport with the sign pointing to the airport. Even worse, we go nowhere when we follow the sign and not the substance itself. My point is this. John existed to point to another. He existed to point the way to another. He wasn't the end of the journey. He pointed to something beyond himself. Verse 77, to give knowledge of salvation to his people, to call towards forgiveness of sins, to let the world know that one was coming whose shoelaces he was unworthy to untie, to give light to the Gentiles, light to those who are in darkness. And here's the point. Zechariah saw this. He saw it in that moment. John hadn't even grown up yet. He hadn't done anything yet. Jesus hadn't been born yet. But John saw it. Faith saw it. And so he was able to go from silence to singing. And I think that's what Christmas is supposed to be about. Going from silence to singing. Singing about the Savior. John was created for this. We were created for this as well. In fact, think about that for your, for your one life this year. You know, what what opportunities does this unique season, there's something about Christmas that where we're just able and permitted, in a sense, we have passport with people to talk about the Savior, where at other period of times it can appear more awkward. So what does it represent for you to reach out to your one life in this Christmas season, to maybe... I don't know, buy them a gift and express your thanks for them, to to have them over to the house. I mean, certainly invite them to the Christmas Eve service so that we can sing about the Savior together and they can experience that. And you know what? I know something about about us. Because in, in, in a room of this size with this many people, there are undoubtedly going to be people that just don't feel like singing right now. And maybe that experience, you experienced that during worship today. Maybe during worship you were, you were occupied with discouraging things and disappointments. And, you know, maybe it was specifically centered into your family, into your, your children. Maybe you're fighting a a serious illness this season, or or you've lost a job, or your income was reduced. Or or Christmas for you, really, Christmas is just another word for anxiety for you. Because all the family are coming together, and that's just an anxious experience to begin with. Or maybe Christmas reminds you of of your marital Status. You are single. You want to be married. You are divorced. You, you can't figure out what happened with that marriage. You are unhappily married. You are widowed, no longer married. And, and Christmas just brings all that right before you once again. Or Christmas is just this depressing time for you. Maybe you feel like Zechariah. Maybe you've, you've had an experience recently where you've been rebuked by an authority, an angel, or, or your boss, maybe the devil, I don't know. You've been rebuked by an authority, and you feel like you've lost your voice. You, you, your story has taken a very sad turn. You know, a lot of times that's wrapped up in the kids, isn't it? You know, one of the things that I... That I one of the biggest adjustments... I think, in my life with respect to parenting is that I thought God gave me kids to portray my strengths, never realizing that God's intention was to reveal my weaknesses. And I thought it was going to be this statement about my leadership within the family and my capabilities when really it was God's rescue of a proud man to drive him to dependence upon God and to realize that leadership doesn't save a person. Jesus saves people. And the funny irony about Christmas and this season is that it's a, it's a season where we're just assumed to be able to have all this joy, but it can often be the most discouraging season of the whole year. And I think we can face that as a family. We can say, yeah, you know, this is how I struggle. And but, but not be content with that. We can go to God with that. And we can say, Lord, I, I, I want to see you. I want to sing about you. But I've got these obstacles in my way. And will you meet me here? And then, and then take up the pen and write the name John. Write the name John. See, what Zechariah did is he, he got his voice back or, or, or he picked up the pen while he was mute. He picked up the pen while he still didn't have his voice. He wrote John not because he felt like it. He wrote John not because he had a voice to speak it. He wrote John because he, he believed God, because he had faith. He wrote John as an act of obedience, and God gave him his voice, and God gave him a song. What does it look like for you to write John? This Christmas, You know, what simple step of faith, what simple step of obedience? I'm not asking you if you feel it. You probably don't feel it. He didn't feel it. What does it look like for you to pick up the pen and write John this Christmas? Maybe you need to excavate your story a little bit more than you have and begin to look at it not as how God has denied you, but like... Zechariah, how God has provided for you and set you up to sing the praises of the Savior, to remember His promises, to remember that He's been faithful, to remember the power of God, to remember, well, the, the partridge in a pear tree who is supposed to be Jesus. And to remember, not because our circumstances have changed, but because our faith has. Because if we see the Savior and we have reason to sing. Let's pray.